Welcome to this podcast from the October 24, 2011 meeting of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. This podcast is from the third session, Presidential Viewpoints on the Future of Division I Athletics. Three university leaders were panelists for this session. Robert Kustra, President of Boise State University, Michael Martin, Chancellor of Louisiana State University, and Thomas Ross, President of the University of North Carolina System. Knight Commission Co-Chairman Gerald R. Turner, who is President of Southern Methodist University, provides the introduction for this session. The podcast runs approximately one hour and 15 minutes. For more information on the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics, please visit www.knightcommission.org. Okay, uh, we now have our second uh, public session of the day and appreciate very much three of our colleagues coming to uh, uh, talk with us about sort of presidential viewpoints on the uh, future Division I athletics, um, the various challenges that certainly have been introduced uh, by President Emmert, and, uh, but uh, topics including uh, the values that uh, would guide the future of our programs, the uh, current efforts in these key policy areas that uh, we've just uh, introduced, and uh, any changes relative to uh, the the uh, direction that you might suggest the Commission's uh, particular emphases have been uh, directed toward or could be in the future, but uh, also just the impact, the impact of the uh, financial uh, disclosure recommendations that we have talked about uh, in the past. These three individuals, the first is uh, Bob Kustra, President of Boise State University. Uh, he's in his ninth year. Uh, he's worked uh, marked by an emphasis on increasing the research of his institution, upgrading admission standards, improving the undergraduate experience, and increasing the number of graduate and doctoral programs, particularly in the sciences and engineering. He's also served as president of Eastern Kentucky and the Midwestern Higher Education Commission before joining Boise State. And he's previously served on the NCA Board of Directors and uh, served on the NCA's Presidential Task Force on the Future of Division I Athletics uh, in 2006. So, Bob, welcome to you. Second is uh, Martin Martin Michael Martin, excuse me, Chancellor LSU. This is kind of LSU Leadership Day, but uh, we're delighted to have uh, you with us. He was named Chancellor of LSU on August 1st, 2008, following a four-year tenure as president of New Mexico State University. Prior to assuming the presidency at New Mexico State, he was vice president for agricultural and natural resources at the University of Florida. An academic leader dedicated to the land-grant mission of teaching research and extension service, he is recognized as a strong voice for education and, the, and also in the agricultural industry. Third, uh, Thomas Ross, uh, president of the University of North Carolina System. He became president of the 17 campus uh, University of North Carolina System on January 1st of 2001 after serving as president of his alma mater, Davidson College, for four years. He was a North Carolina Superior Court judge for 17 years, and in that role he received numerous awards for judicial excellence and public service. He's a former chairman of the UNC Greensboro Board of Trustees and served on the Board of Visitors uh, for UNC uh, 
UNC uh, Green uh, G. Chapel Hill, excuse me, got the wrong one here, yes, and Wake Forest University as well as the Board of Directors for numerous organizations including uh, the North Carolina Independent Colleges and Universities. So we appreciate very much uh, these individuals uh, coming to be with us uh, for this occasion, and uh, Bob, why don't we start with you, and then we'll just go down the road there. Thank you very much, Gerald. It's great to be here today. Uh, first of all, I'd like to commend the Knight Commission for its work over the years. I certainly uh, am pleased to be with a group of people who have focused uh, specifically on the arms race, as uh, I like to call it, and I've heard others call it. Uh, and today you saw some numbers that gives you every reason to continue focusing on that uh, challenge. Uh, there is uh, an interesting congruity, or maybe it's an incongruity, I'm not sure. Uh, I uh, spent 18 years in elected office in Illinois, and uh, maybe one of the last statewide elected officials to actually leave that state for a university as opposed to a federal penitentiary. But that's another subject. Uh, and that, it, Mike says it's not over yet either. And that, that's what Henry Beenan tells me, who lives in Illinois and knows more about that than I do. Uh, but uh, the Republican Governors Association is meeting right next door to us. Now, what better group of people to slash expenditures? Uh, they seem to have done a very good job of it in their own states. It's like maybe we ought to take this wall down and listen to them for a while and see if maybe they can figure out how we get some of these numbers down to more, uh, more reasonable ones. Uh, I can tell you from the trenches that uh, the arms race is doing well. It's doing just fine. Uh, we're, uh, we're at the lower end of the arms race. In fact, we're at the very low end of the arms race when it, when it comes to schools that have consistently over these last few years uh, been ranked nationally in, in football, for example. Uh, when you take a look at, at what we spend, it is a mere pittance uh, compared to the real big spenders in, in the system. And believe you me, that doesn't stop us from wanting to be a wannabe. Uh, the fact of the matter is there is incredible competition. There is an incredible pressure on the part of those who could in some theoretical world be identified as those who are trying to do it right. Frankly, that isn't the way to say it because we're doing it the only way we know how to do it. And I suppose if we had the resources, we'd look differently than we do today. But um, when it comes to this issue of, of spending, uh, there is just no question that we have a lot of work to do. I commend Mark Emmert for uh, his comments here today, for his leadership. I commend the reform group for the work it's done. And yet, I know there are plenty of people in this room reporting this event who thus far are saying, there they go talking again. They do such a great job of it. And where's the action? And the action will come when a Division I Board of Directors stands behind these reform proposals and votes for them. And some of these reform proposals that I read uh, need some work. They need to be strengthened. They need to be underscored uh, and underlined. And I'm not sure we have, uh, we have reached nirvana when it comes to uh, the sum and substance of those proposals, although, as I said, I greatly admire uh, the leadership of, of Mark Emmert and the work he has done thus far in that regard. Uh, just so you know, to put this in perspective, that you can, in fact, do more with less, we have an APR of 981. Mark sent a letter to my coach, Coach Chris Peterson, just a few weeks ago, commanding him for the highest two-year average for any FBS head coach 
in America. Uh, just so you know, when you compare our, our funding, the top five and the bottom five, we're way down in the bottom five. My, uh, as I think I was telling a group yesterday, when we beat Oklahoma in the Fiesta Bowl, the size of our football budget was smaller than the coach's salary at Oklahoma alone. And I think that puts it in proper perspective. So if this were a group of scientists, I would think they'd be taking this genome, this athletic genome at Boise State, sticking it under a microscope and trying to figure out how do you do all that with, with less? Uh, what is it about how you can be that successful? Lots of answers to that that is not the subject of this presentation this morning. But I will also tell you that we're, we're, we're not perfect. And I can also speak to some of Mark's comments about the reforms and specifically about the issues regarding uh, how we make rules, the extent of those rules in NCAA uh, parlance, whether or not we've gone overboard. Uh, we have had our appearance before the infractions committee. And I can tell you how difficult it is for coaches to even understand the rules. And uh, I can report the fact that in, in our particular case, uh, it had very dramatic and unfortunate results in that as ridiculous as those rules are, I thought it absolutely imperative that they be followed. And a good man, a man who spent many years building this program, lost his job as a result of our appearing before that committee. There are many reasons for that, but one certainly has to be the fact that the NCAA has not yet figured out how to put together a rule that makes sense and is absolutely critical to the future of integrity in the sport and rules that simply are unintelligible by the smartest people in the land. And so again, I commend Mark and the reform group for the work uh, they're doing in that regard. Uh, as far as the, uh, the resource allocation group that, that Mike Adams is, is heading, I think that is perhaps my greatest interest and I would argue the greatest challenge. Uh, I've, I've read it and I think it's uh, just the first page alone is a list of things that are very important and must happen in intercollegiate athletics. Again, what I want to see is when this list sits on the table of Division I Board of Directors and there's an I vote on this list across the board. That, to me, seems to be the next great challenge. I'd be happy to answer any other questions after uh, my colleagues here have had a chance to speak. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you, Bob. And we will come back for a round of questions when everyone is finished. Well, thank Martin. you, Gerald, and thank you all for the chance to uh, join you today. Uh, uh, in some respects, I, I, I wouldn't say I'm in a unique position, but I'm certainly in a rare one, having been the president of one of the Division 1A schools in the bottom 10 with respect to budget, and now being the chancellor of one uh, Division 1A school in the top 10 with respect to I've been on both ends of this. And I will tell you that despite the fact that money does uh, solve a lot of problems, it still creates problems as well. I'm not entirely sure I would make, could make the argument, for example, that the student-athlete experience is any better at one end of the, uh, that spectrum than the other. And so the notion that somehow driving up budgets or finding ways to redistribute money to our budgets and therefore lead to a better outcome for student-athletes, uh, to me, is still an open question. It certainly is, in some respects, comforting to be at LSU. I believe, if you look over time, we're one of a very small handful of institutions where the athletic enterprise actually puts money into the academic enterprise. 
and we average every year somewhere between four and six million dollars that comes from athletics to the other side of the world. Uh, but that still doesn't mean that this is by any means the perfect place to be, ranked number one or wherever you are in the world, because there are challenges that come with it. There may be a handful of people in this room who are as old as I am and remember a comedy album produced by Bob Newhart in 1960 called The Button Down Mind and Bob Newhart, in which uh, the comedy was him getting a one-sided phone conversation. In one case, he was Lincoln's uh, PR agent. But in another case, he was having baseball explained to him by Abner Doubleday. And the name of the particular bit was called Nobody Will Ever Play Baseball because when you heard it from only one side, it made no sense. And to some extent, when we ta start talking about big-time college athletics and, only, and do a Bob Newhart-ish kind of view of it, it does have a hard time, in my mind, making sense. For example, and I would argue, that we now are in a position where, in college football, we are trapped by the number of bowls. Seventy of 100 teams, 70 of 120 teams, must win six to fill all of the bowls, which means that programs like that I'm in now have to buy two wins a year from programs like the program I was in. New Mexico State would sell a couple of losses to the big schools for wins so that we could ensure that we would have 70 eligible teams. That meant that there's a real built-in incentive for the rich to stay rich and the poor to stay poor enough that they are willing to give up losses to balance their budgets. We now pay coaches, and, and Bob, believe me, I understand the size of coaching salaries because I think our total coaching budget in football is now in excess of $10 million. So we pay coaches and the coaching staff well over $10 million or up in that number. And when they go to one of the bowl games for which we have bought two wins, we have to give them a bonus for having arrived there. And if their APR, which it seems to me to be a natural part of being a teacher or coach, is above the expected lower level, we give them another bonus for that. So we end up with a situation where the incentive system has really made this a peculiar world in which we live. And I'm not sure that, that we can undo that with anything really simple. It's going to take something bigger than that. Uh, so when you start explaining the way it works in sort of simple, layman, close-to-the-ground terms, much of it is beginning to not make a lot of sense. I believe, for example, that among the challenges we face, along with this explosion of the number of bowl games and 70 teams have to go, but Mike, last year, Mike, 10 of our 12 teams in the SEC went to a bowl game. Yet it says in the NCAA manual, as I recall, that a bowl is supposed to be a reward for a successful season. So, and at least in the SEC, we are very much into Garrison Keeler world. We're all above average. Uh, we've all, we all have had a successful season, all 10 of 12. Uh, and, and perhaps we would have had all 12 could have had we, they could have bought two more wins each uh, last season. So we've created this very peculiar world in which we live. And among the issues that bother me a bit, and these are just casual observations from not from specifically from LSU's perspective, but from sitting in that chair at the moment. First of all, I think we've traded off competition for winning. I think it's more important to win than to really compete. So we set up schedules, even in basketball, where the pre-conference schedule is designed so that if you can go 50-50 in the conference, you can win 26 and get an invitation to the 68-team dance at the end. It isn't about whether or not you're challenging your athletes to play against the best athletes. 
It's about whether or not you're giving the coach the opportunity to win enough games to play in the postseason to create another bonus. We have turned, I think, coaches and athletes to some extent into celebrities when neither have truly earned celebrity status, either the upside or the downside of it. We have 18 in our community, and they're wonderful kids by and large, but we have 18 to 22-year-olds who are local celebs. And when they do well, they are praised, and when they do poorly, they are denigrated. We put them on a stage that they are not only sometimes not academically prepared to handle, but they're not personally prepared to handle. And we've just gone through that if you follow the papers. We had to set three starters down for last week's game against Auburn. And they were the front page news. We had a little incident with some players who decided that they thought something good happens at a bar at 2.30 in the morning, which I have never discovered what that is. And I pointed out to a couple of them that that's why they don't hand out the Nobel Prizes at 2.30 in the morning at a bar in Oslo. And nothing good happens there. But they were above the fold on the front page of our paper seven days in a row. They were the subject now of great interest, and they're 18 to 22-year-old student athletes. So I'm not sure we haven't created some of our own problems there. We have, I think, building up among many of our institutions a certain hostility during this time between the faculty and athletics. Now, Mark talked about a $2,000 addition that conferences could assign. And Mike knows, I think, that at one of our recent meetings, I expressed some angst about that. Because I've got 1,400 faculty who would love to have $2,000 more a year. Having gone four years without any pay raises and having laid people off to suddenly say, well, athletes need the full cost of admission, but you may not need the full cost of living. And that divide, I think, will make it much more difficult for us to fill the gap and ensure that the faculty believes these are student athletes and not simply an appendage. At LSU, and I'll say this, I've said this to Les Miles, we have the good and bad of what we call the football operations center, a massive place where football lives by itself on an island. They have, I think, their own currency, their own language, secret handshakes, a variety of things. And in our case, the geography of the campus makes it difficult because what they are on the other side of the tracks, literally. And so they live there in this kind of refined atmosphere, which in some respects causes a distance, which I think sends a message at times that is not in the best interest of the institution. Let me tell you a few things I have tried to do myself in the last couple of years, minor as they are to try to get my arms around this. First is, I read regularly the NCAA book on 2.116.11, which says the presidents and chancellors are, quote, responsible for all aspects of athletics. And so I remind myself that it says in the book we're supposed to take charge. Now, I don't actually believe we can, but, but uh, I, I don't delude myself. But I try to remind myself of that. I, and this is was controversial on campus, made my athletic director also a vice chancellor because I wanted to send the message that the athletic director was the administration's emissary to athletics, not the other way around. And therefore, he was part of the cabinet and responsible for the larger institution as well as athletics. Now, that, that may or may not work. I have increasingly turned to people outside of athletics to help me better understand how to operate the business side, not the competitive side of athletics. How do we run the non-competitive part like a business so that it's efficient? And I've jokingly said, jokingly said to my AD that the budgeting model for athletics is 
Get all the money you can and spend 120% of it. Now, that's not quite true, but there are ways to be more efficient. We are, I think, increasingly interested in both alignment and scheduling that does not adversely affect the academic side of the non-big exposed programs, where you have to fly or fly commercial a tennis team to some remote them back reasonably well. So all of those things we've been thinking more and more about. And then the other thing some of you know, and I think Britt knows this, among others in this room, I have encouraged the academic organizations to which we belong, APLU, ACE, ASCU, AAU, others, to form some sort of an alliance with this commission so that when we wear our academic hats, we are also talking about how athletics fits in. And I do think that will go a long way to increasing the credibility of whatever we do to the academic side of our enterprise, because despite the fact that we are all academic leaders around this table, people perceive us wearing athletic hats while we're sitting here. And it would be nice for occasionally for us to put our academic hats on. So Peter McPherson and, and Molly Broad and others have heard from me about can we find a way for the entire complex of those organizations that interact with universities and higher education to come together and re-ask the question in a larger context, how does athletics fit appropriately, complementarily into a major university and into higher education? And it may go for not, but I will feel a little bit better if I can pull this off. But with that, I'll turn it over to Tom, and thank you for the chance to join you today. Thank you, Mike. Tom? Yeah. Well, good morning. Um, thank you for the opportunity to be with you today. And, and let me uh, first say that I'm not sure why I'm here, since I'm relatively new in, in uh, the world of public higher education. I did have, as, as was mentioned, a, an opportunity uh, to lead a private institution. But most of my career uh, has been either in philanthropy or uh, as a judge. And so I might bring some different perspectives than you normally hear, and if they're, if they're irrelevant, I apologize, and if not, hopefully they'll add some value. Uh, first of all, I, I represent an institution uh, that has 17 campuses. Three of our campuses uh, are in the uh, Bowl Championship Series for football. Uh, four are uh, in the FCS. Uh, we have six uh, institutions um, without football, four of which in, are in Division One, and we have four institutions in Division Two. So a wide spread of the kind of institutions uh, that I am responsible to try and lead. Um, we were asked to address a number of things, and I'll try to do it quickly. Uh, one is the values of what ought to be included uh, as we look to the future, and I'm someone naively perhaps, who believes that uh, athletics and academics can coexist uh, and can do so effectively and successfully. Uh, my experience at Davidson College certainly taught me that. That's a very highly selective liberal arts college, as most of you know, uh, and uh, yet has uh, Division I athletics and um, has even been seen uh, playing in the last game of the day in the Elite Eight. Uh, and uh, so has had the chance to uh, make it to the tournament and, and have a great run, and it was terrific, which I'll talk more about in just a moment. But I think it takes work to make academics and athletics uh, coexist, and uh, I, I applaud the work that this commission does 
uh, and the work that, that the NCAA and MARC are undertaking now, because I think there are moves in the right direction that can certainly help us um, help us head in, in a direction where there's more uh, equilibrium between the two. Uh, I'll say, however, that I think always academics has to come first. That's our core mission, and if, if we are to meet the demand for the workforce of the future and produce the leaders for our communities and our society, um, and if we are to affect the common good as we move forward, we must uh, continue to keep our primary focus on our academic mission. But I also will say that I think athletics has um, a, a, a very valuable uh, role to play in college life, uh, not just for uh, alumni, which clearly it, it uh, does warm the hearts of alumni to see their school uh, prevail in a big game, and it keeps them engaged and brought back to the campus. Uh, frankly, uh, you know, I think those of us who have led institutions and have to raise money will say it helps raise money. Uh, it, it, for academics, uh, it, it, the institution I led before the one where I am now, uh, we raised more money for academics from former athletes uh, than we did from anyone else. Uh, and um, so I, I think it's an important part of an institution, but it also, uh, I think, presents great opportunity for students, not just student athletes. You know, you, you, I found at least uh, and still find that kids come to an institution in part uh, because they want to be fans. They want the atmosphere of college athletics. Uh, and so uh, it can help an institution in recruiting uh, students, but also I think just providing um, an environment in which students can live and grow both emotionally, intellectually, and socially. So uh, I'm a believer in athletics. I think it, it is uh, important to the college experience, uh, and we need to preserve it uh, in a way that continues that tradition. Um, let me turn to the NCAA proposals briefly and, and comment on a couple of them. Uh, I think first with regard to the eligibility standards, uh, I couldn't agree more with the direction. I, I suppose the, the one place where I might offer suggestions is looking at uh, the core courses that are required. I know they're considering that, but I think those courses ought to be increased uh, so that uh, essentially kids can't um, you know, they're, they're held accountable for more courses. Uh, I think we ought to be looking at the Common Core course standards, which now 44 states have adopted, and uh, look at requiring uh, those. The math and English, I think, are very important for college success. And so thinking about it, not just as what's going to make an athlete eligible, but what is really going to prepare them for uh, the college academic life is, is the direction we ought to be heading. And I think the change sends an important message and can actually help uh, improve for academic performance um, in secondary schools as well. Um, I'm intrigued by the idea of differing standards for first-year participation. Uh, I think it, you, you know, it, it could matter. Uh, I'm not, given the, the, what I observed um, in terms of the time commitment that athletes have uh, in, in the weight room and in all the other places, uh, I'm not sure even if you're not allowed to compete your first year that you're really going to save that much time because you've got an enormous amount of time and energy put into other activities, which I suspect coaches will still encourage, if not demand. Um, so that one's one worth watching in my view, but may or may not be as helpful as, as uh, um, it is anticipated. I, I strongly applaud the the minimum APR for postseason participation. I think that's nothing but good. 
Um, the, the emphasis on transfer standards is right on. I mean, it's an issue we all face anyway for students overall and certainly not different for, for athletes. Um, you know, the cost of attendance, again, I think for those that can afford it, may turn out to be a good thing. There are an awful lot of schools, and many of which I have responsible, uh, responsibility for, that will not be able to afford this. Uh, and uh, it does create some uh, slicing and dicing and differential between schools in terms of recruiting and that sort of thing. It's just one more edge for the big guys. Um, and so I think it's it's uh, questionable, you, you know, it. Um, I don't want to get into minutia, but I've been thinking about, well, so, okay, you give them 2000 bucks, and then they go spend it on something you wish they hadn't. Um, so how can you keep that from happening? And so my idea is give them a debit card instead of cash, and maybe that'll, that'll help that the university gets the receipts on. But anyway, um, I think multi-year grants, I've I got to say to me, are kind of a no-brainer. Obviously, you want to be able to hold people accountable for academics and otherwise, but the school, if they're going to make a commitment to a student-athlete, they ought to live with that commitment, and I think that's really important. Um, I, I would almost rather see us shift more resources there, so if you make a commitment to a young person, um, because most of our athletes uh, are not going to play professionally, and, and we, we owe them if we're going to attract them to our institutions to support them uh, for their full education. Uh, one that bothers me a little is the the ban on foreign travel, I think at first blush it sounds great, uh, but, you know, we're about, at least at many of our institutions, of encouraging international engagement. You know, we're in a global world, and we want kids to have exposure, and for some student-athletes, that's their only chance. Uh, you know, they're not going to be able to go for a semester abroad, because if they're playing basketball, for example, over two semesters, or e any athlete, really, because of the training requirements, they're going to be denied the opportunity, for the most part, to have an international experience, and uh, though it can be expensive, it, it is also, uh, from my perspective at least, is you know, creating a little bit of a reverse level playing field for, uh, to, to level out with non-student athletes who have those opportunities sometimes. And so I would be a little cautious about moving in that direction if I had my way. Um, I, I frankly think scholarships might could be restricted even more. You know, I look at the NFL and they play a season with 54 players, I think. Uh, they have injured reserves and they can go buy them a new player here and there if they need it during the course of the year. But um, it seems to me that, that we could do with certainly less than 85 or even 80 scholarships. Um, we do it already at the football championship level, so clearly it can be done. Um, I also wonder if, if one approach might be, that even if you're going to let people keep more scholarships, is to limit uh, both the travel and the, the, those who get a dress out uh, to a smaller number, which saves substantial travel for some. Um, I really think we're, we've got a huge opportunity looking at, at um, uh, non-coaching staff reduction, uh, Mike, because I, you know, I know at, at some of our more prosperous institutions, it's a one-to-one -one ratio. You put a football team of 80 kids on an airplane, the, the other, there could be at least that number uh, that are on that same plane uh, that, that aren't, uh, aren't players. So... Um, a couple of other quick ones. I, you know, I think that we, we, there's no question we need to simplify the rules. Um, you know, I think we need to dedicate whatever resources it takes to build an effective enforcement system. Uh, you know, when I look at this system from the perspective of 17 years as a judge, it's not a very good, it's not a good, very good one. Uh, you know, I, I think the elements of fairness that 
basic fairness uh, to student athletes and to others uh, is lacking on occasions. Um, the, the length of time, you know, we used to have speedy trial rules in, in America. We're missing those here, I think, sometimes. And, and um, you know, just basic due process. This is, this is time, I think, a great opportunity to take a fresh look at how we do enforcement at the NCAA. Uh, even, even the idea of asking schools to, you know, punish themselves first and, and that kind of thing seems a little um, odd from the judicial perspective. I never had a defendant volunteer to go to prison before I had this <laughs> shot at him, uh, so I'm not sure it's uh, necessarily the best approach. Uh, also, you know, when I was a judge, I spent um, most of my time, uh, I chaired the Sentencing Commission in North Carolina. I, I visited 35 states talking about sentencing guidelines, uh, and the value, one of the real values of sentencing guidelines is consistency of punishment. Um, and from the public's perspective, there's very little more important than basic fairness in the hearing and consistency of punishment. Uh, so I was really happy to hear Mark mention the word guidelines. I think that's definitely looking at range of sanctions for particular circumstances is a move in the right direction. Um, just a couple of other suggestions. Um, one is I think the NCAA could benefit from having uh, people like uh, Britt on, on their uh, active in their organization. And when I say that, what I mean is people who represent systems, uh, who, who have the perspective of looking at a variety of different institutions on a daily basis and aren't driven by a particular institution. Uh, and that, that perspective, not that that's not a good one that should be brought to the table. I just am not sure we think of uh, I looked at the list of people that went to the President's Summit, and there, there were very few system people there, uh, a couple but not many. Um, and yet, as I say, I think we, we tend to represent a variety of different institutions. Finally, for me, there are some pieces of enforcement that cannot be solved without involvement of the professional leagues. There are all sorts of problems with that, but I think we have to put it on the table and talk about it. I think we have to reach out to them. Uh, agent problems, for example, if an agent can tamper with our athletes uh, and then go right on their, about their merry way the next season representing people in, in the professional leagues, um, that's, that's no punishment for the people that cause the problem, and we've got to figure out. Uh, and this is true in the NCAA, too, figuring out how to better punish the offenders as opposed to oftentimes punishing the people that are left behind. Some of the student athletes that were on teams with people who did things wrong and are gone and are playing for millions of dollars are left to suffer the punishments. Um, and it seems to me like we've got to figure out better how to reach the real violators. And that's true of student athletes. And again, I think if you've got student athletes who uh, do egregious, uh, egregiously wrong things and move on to the next level, uh, that the next level needs to help us figure out how to inflict some punishment there because that sends a message back down the line uh, that if you want to be a successful student athlete, you can violate the rules if you want to have a professional career. And, uh, I, I know there are lots of issues with that one, but I think it's one that has to be put on the table. So I'll stop with that and be happy to answer questions. All right. Thank all of you. And uh, obviously there are a number of topics that, uh, and directions that our uh, conversations with these three academic leaders can go, but uh, who would like to have the first uh, question to them? Anybody start it? Nita? Thank you. Are you feeling any pushback from your faculty at the cost of, 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 the, of the athletic department, and how are you dealing with that pushback? Absolutely. Uh, they, I'm reminded by the faculty senate with great regularity about how much we spend on athletics, and, and most recently athletic facilities. We've gone through a huge building 
boom in the last five years at LSU from a major remodeling of the golf course, a brand new huge baseball complex, a new softball complex. Of course, football operations is only about seven years old. That was a Nick Saban gift to us. Now there's talk of further expansion of the football stadium. And at the same time, faculty are sitting in rooms where the roof leaks and uh, and uh, the conditions are far from optimal. So there's no question that there is an intensifying discomfort, if that's the right term maybe at this time, between what faculty see as their welfare and all of this and uh, and the welfare of that we seem to lavish upon athletics. And the other, just real quickly so you know, we have on our campus a lab school at the university runs. And uh, it's considered to be a pretty desirable place to put your children. And for a while, there was some kind of deal cut that if you were a premier coach, your children had immediate access to uh, the lab school. We've dealt with that one. Uh, but it, it, the, I, I think that that undercurrent is out there. And as the numbers explode in terms of costs, as the number of infractions continues to play on the front page, and, uh, and, and as budgets continue, as was pointed out, to be suppressed on the academic side, that tension will only rise. Jack. Um, um, Chisler, in response to, uh, to Nita's question and, and what you just described in your earlier comments, ha have you found a, a way to institute any sort of new structures, new processes, new ways of trying to engage the, the tension and the conflict that you're confronting? Absolutely. One of the things we've done is we've greatly expanded and I hopefully empowered the athletic council on the campus, which oversees athletics from the faculty side. It's a faculty, it's a joint a committee a organization appointed by the chancellor and the faculty senate. And I believe we have engaged them better in understanding. And, and they have, in all candor, the athletic department's gone out of their way to try to uh, make these people feel special as well. When, when we won the national championship, both in football and in baseball recently, every member got a ring. And so they, they, they felt like they were somehow insiders. And I'm not sure that's good or bad, but, but uh, we're certainly trying to give the faculty through various means a sense that they have both a stake and some reasonable amount of in, uh, involvement in assuring that athletics meets the standards and the values that they embrace. But it, during difficult financial times, it's really hard to send that message when you see, and we've just done it, we've given several of our coaches salary increases because they've had very successful seasons. At the same time, the fa and it, it makes the front page of the paper, I guarantee you, and the faculty note that. Okay, other questions? Oh, excuse me, sorry. Of all the problems that you've, um, various problems that you've outlined and the changes that you um, think need to be made, how much would a, a review, a reform uh, in the governing structure help you address uh, some of the, all these issues? Either one of us, any of us? Yes. Well, I'll give you my shot. I think it'd help a great deal. Uh, the truth of the matter is we all know, I think, in our souls as things we'd like to do. But to do it individually back at home is almost impossible. You've got to have the air cover of the larger group so that while participating in that larger group like this group, you can go back and say, well, this was visited upon us by that great presence out there in terms of governance. So I, I, in a very practical sense, I think it's the only way to do it. And, uh, and Mike, I think, and those of us who are in the SEC know that when we tried this last year and we did to limit gray shirting, what was the immediate response? Well, you can't do it at the SEC if the Big Ten, the Pac-10, everybody else isn't. So there's no question from my perspective that the, that the, the collective 
protection of the group gives us each the capacity to do it closer to home. Uh, President Lawson and uh, Bob, would you both like to address that question too? Uh, as I said earlier, I, I think you know having broader perspectives in governance certainly helps. But I couldn't agree more. You know, I think it's uh, it's really the responsibility of those who are leading institutions to step in and lead in this arena as well. And um, you know, I think the governance is is a place where we need to be more active and and uh, in that in, in that way. Okay. I endorsed Tom's suggestion earlier that the Division I Board of Directors consider system representation as opposed to just uh, university president representation by the strongest and the most powerful in one particular state. Uh, systems, of course, deal with uh, athletics across the board in, in uh, various configurations. And in my service on the Board of Directors, um, I never felt as though all points of view were necessarily, uh, well, they might have been considered, but when it comes time for the votes uh, or the discussions, it was always clear that the large universities who hold most of the power have more to say, uh, control committees, control the agenda uh, in very specific ways. And so with system representation, I think you'd have the broader perspective that Tom is discussing. Liam? Um, let me direct my remarks to an Honorable Judge Ross. Uh, you know, I've been listening to your, your viewpoints on a variety of those issues. I find myself in total agreement, but the one thing that, you know, I'm having a little trouble with, obviously, with the, with the equivalence of the guidelines, if you will. I mean, to me, it seems like there's nothing that prevents sure, swift, and proportional type of, of punishment sanctions for schools and for institutions and for individuals that violate rules. But to uh, apply guidelines, to me, might discourage that, that self-investigation and, and the self-sanctioning, which, you know, to me is tantamount to plea bargaining. Now, I'm a former prosecutor, and we recognize how important plea bargaining is with the, you know, with the weight of, uh, of so many enforcement cases that come up, and the NCAA doesn't have the resources to do that. And if you discourage you know, that self-investigation and ultimately the attempt at mitigation, um, it puts a, a great deal of pressure on, on the, uh, the enforcement mechanism. So, you know, from that standpoint, I, as I said, I don't think there's anything that prevents the sure, swift, and proportional uh, types of, of, of acts that, that the NCAA can, can impose, but nevertheless, I don't want to uh, discourage that, um, you know, self-investigation and, and the self-imposition of, of sanctions. And the other thing that I want to emphasize from an agreement standpoint, I wholeheartedly agree that we also have to hold the student-athlete accountable. I've been saying that for years. These kids, people talk about them as having maybe, um, you know, an imbalance in, in their ability to, to make certain decisions. But in the end, if they can follow the complexities of the game, if they can follow playbooks, if they can follow team rules, they know right from wrong. And in this case, if you have a way, and, and you do have to probably talk to the pros, if you have a way of sanctioning even after they leave school, of sanctioning an individual, because it takes two. If you have a way of sanctioning an individual, I think you put most of this to an end, because if you can jeopardize their pro careers, that's the last thing a young man or a young woman would want to do. Absolutely. Well, I, obviously, I agree with you on the last point. On the first point, I don't disagree with you either. I just think there's a way to accommodate that concern. You know, I think um, in developing guidelines, there are lots of ways to do it, lots of factors. Um, you know, I, I remember going through the process and 
the prosecutors hated it to start with, and then they love it now because it actually forces more plea bargaining. But, um, but I think you can take into account cooperation. You can take into account, uh, you know, self-reporting. All those can be taken into account. What I'm looking for is, is a range, and it can be a relatively broad range, but some sort of message that if you do this, there's going to be real punishment, first of all, and this is what it's going to look like. But secondly, you know, for the NCAA to have credibility with the public and with the fans and therefore to have credibility with institutions, there has to be a, a better job at applying some consistency across uh, uh, across uh, the kinds of sanctions that we see. I mean, you see one and it, it, it sounds just like another one, and yet the sanction is vastly different. Uh, and so I think it's time to look hard at a way to bring more consistency to that. But I think those are the kind of points that if one went through a process, you would surface those and figure out ways to take them into account. Val? I want to thank all of you for the uh, From the Front Lines comments. Um, I want to pick up, um, Chancellor Martin, a comment you made about the incentive system. Um, you know, the kind of notion, I guess, simply put, that so much of what's driving behavior is the desire to win. Um, and that's resulting in more monies going into facilities and coaching salaries and programs and so on. And we've had a lot of discussion within the commission about the incentives. And in fact, in the report of last year, um, included a section recommending that perhaps the incentive system could be changed to make it more about academics and less about winning. And I think the stat um, that we've used is that um, this past year, the BCS and the NCAA will award more than 350 million dollars on the basis of winning in football and appearing in BCS games and winning in the men's basketball tournament in the NCAA. And there's no money from any of that that's being set aside for academic performance or graduation rates and the like. And so one of the recommendations has been that some amount of money to be determined would be set aside on that basis. And I guess my question to you is, is that feasible? I mean, is that, is that a good idea? Is that workable? Is that something that you think would get some traction I guess it would have to be approved by the membership uh, as, you know, as you sort of look ahead to how you can change behavior and focus on the kinds of things that I think all of us agree are so important. I certainly think it's worth a try. I really believe that. We've had this conversation at the SEC level because the SEC itself, the organization, generates a lot of money from their share. And how can we put some of that at the SEC level back into recognition of academics? This year we're going to launch a program to recognize outstanding faculty with an honorarium just as we do recognize the outstanding athletes across the conference. And so any of those things, and I think some of the reforms being talked about make a difference. If you have to maintain your APR to go to postseason play, it will get coaches thinking a good deal more both about supporting academic advising, giving kids time off from practice if they need to take a test or go to class that they can't otherwise make up, and the way in which they recruit. And, uh, and I do believe that we have a serious challenge when we recruit for the sake of athletic ability and then try to fix the academic side. Um, I won't speak specifically to – I can't speak to anybody else, but in a couple of our teams, more than half of the teams are special admits, and then we invest a huge amount of money in trying to keep them academically eligible and successful enough. And I think as the coaches and others who are very close to those students feel that incentive being built into their future – you will get much different reaction. And, and if the NCAA chose to reward academic performance as well through the generation of the revenues from the Final Four or the spring March Madness, I think that's an experiment clearly worthy of a try. Henry? 
<clears throat> Chancellor Martin mentioned on this point that Val raised too of uh, when he was looking at coaches' contracts and saw bonuses for graduation rates and whatnot. And I must say, when I was dealing with a coach once at Northwestern, I asked to see my colleague Big Ten um, contracts, and they were good enough to show them. And I saw a lot of that. And I, I have a very mixed mind about it. Uh, it seems to me it's what should be done. And to pay a bonus to a coach for graduation rates, though I understand how we got there, and I'm certainly not opposed to uh, what we've been doing at the Knight Commission in, in trying to get reward for academic performance built into uh, distribution of money uh, as well as having the standards raised. But I, I, I just say I, I'm ambivalent about that. I understand why it happened. It certainly uh, the, the uh, aim is a decent aim uh, to reward people for academic performance of their student-athletes, and yet it should be something that comes with the territory and not something for special reward. Oh, and I, I agree, and I, I share your ambivalence about it in that sense, but at the same time, I think we have turned coaches much more into selectors than into teachers, mentors, and role models. And we reward them for selection and winning. And we recognize that since it's not expected to some extent that they're part of the academic enterprise, we have to reward them above and beyond that if they happen to do contribute to the academic side of the enterprise. And so I'm still wrestling with it myself. But having just gone through a series of signing all those contracts for yet another year, and there's a lot, and I look at that part of it and I say, isn't that isn't that what the base salary is for? Isn't that the <laughs> fundamental expectation that, A, you win more than six, but in the process you actually develop young people into better citizens, both academically and in personal conduct and a variety of other things? And if that isn't what the base salary is for, please explain to me what it is for. President Kester. Uh, Gerald, if I could just make a, a comment about the question regarding your, your uh, the criteria and how we might apply academic uh, requirements uh, to, to winning and ranking and who's in and who's out. Uh, the New America Foundation, with which I am not familiar, uh, for four years now has created what they call the Academic Bowl Championship Series rankings. And they take uh, four federal graduation rate calculations, the football team's graduation rate relative to the school overall, the difference between black and white graduation rates on the team, the difference between black and white graduation rates at the school overall, the difference between the graduation rates of black players on the football team and the school's overall black student population. And then they publish those in the top 25 rankings. So when Auburn and, and Oregon played for the national BCS championship, they put out their own rankings. I guess the question is, who's going to find this information? With all due respect to the New America Foundation, with which I am not familiar, it's buried somewhere on a website, and I wonder how many people find it. If the NCAA, and maybe even the Knight Commission, took this on and co-opted it, I'm sure the New America Foundation would love nothing more than, than, a, than a partner. And in the most self-serving statement of all today, I'll tell you that Stanford and Boise State would have been playing in the Academic National Championship game. <laughs> Somehow I knew it was headed. Uh, one, of the, one of the questions that I think comes out of uh, the proposal that would have increasing uh, APR associated with participation in, in basketball tournaments and other kinds of things and so on, I saw a little bit of this relative to uh, Henry's statement, uh, a, a contract bonus for a certain APR level not achieved. And rather than the coach saying, 
that, you know, gosh, we're going to do better. The whole issue was you're not putting enough money in academic counseling. I'm not. I can tell them to go there, and I tell them to go there, but if you don't have, you know, 25 people ready to work with them, then uh, it's your fault, not my fault. It's the academic's fault. Bonus being earned, a report by somebody that the head of their academic counseling center uh, claimed that the bonus should have gone to them, not the coach. There's probably some pretty good points made there. And so I guess with all of your uh, emphasis that you were talking about, uh, Chancellor Martin, about uh, facilities and everything else, I would assume academic counseling as it relates to all of this is another one of those that's been ratcheted up? Absolutely, at a very high level. Compared to the, the non-athletic non students? The resources we have, we have, they a, have. Huge, a huge staff and a huge center that is available to any student on campus, but it is called the Academic Center for Athletes named after Cox Cable, incidentally. So the message is pretty clear who belongs there. And it's, it's a high uh, visibility, but also a very expensive enterprise. And it is, I think the point's well made. The coaches get the bonus, but a lot of good people making $42,000 a year are traveling with those teams and trying to make sure that when they're on the road, they're hitting the books and getting some tutoring. And yet they get relatively little recognition. And I'm, I'm with Bob. I don't know exactly how we'd work this out, but some kind of recognition of the combination of competitive success and academic success ought to be built into the way in which we rank and judge programs. Yeah. Okay. Gerald, I just oh, go ahead. jump in. Excuse uh, me. Go ahead. On this point, because uh, you know the emphasis on graduation rates, the emphasis on academic success, APRs, is critical and important. Um, I think we can't lose sight, however, of, again, the difference in institutions and the resources that are available in institutions to be able to provide the academic support. Um, you know, if you, uh, again, look at sort of the range of institutions that Britt represents and I represent, uh, you've got institutions that, that can't provide that kind of that level of academic support that are playing Division I sports, uh, that want to go to the NCAA basketball tournament just as much as anybody else. Um, and, you know, we, we have to be careful not to put them at a real disadvantage or to figure out a funding mechanism that puts some money aside uh, that the, is generated um, by the tournaments and by bowl games and so forth, put some of that money aside to assist those schools who uh, don't always have the, the resources needed to, uh, to provide their student-athletes with the support they need on the academic side. Right. Well, if, I, if I could just... Uh to get back to another subject, but since academic support came up, uh, the cost of attendance, I didn't comment on that in my opening statement. Uh, my colleagues did. Mike uh, mentioned uh, the issues with faculty on, on campus. Um, I, I really don't think this is a very good idea, at least right now, uh, and, and for the following reasons. Uh, first of all, and I understand the Knight Commission has not taken a position on this issue. Is that no, we've we in two different instances oh. have talked about supporting a cost of it. Oh, okay. Um, the concern I have is that I really do hope that whoever supports it uh, gets down inside an athletic department and follows the life of a student athlete around, at least in Division One. I, I can't speak for the rest in Division One athletics, and takes a look at what uh, resources they have available to them. What is spent on them? Uh, Google the University of Oregon's new $20 million academic support facility. Take a good look at it. And then add up all of the support 
that those students have versus the rest of our students uh, who are making minimum wage, uh, collecting tips, trying to find their way into their next semester uh, at the university. Uh, secondly, think a little bit about the competitive advantage. You just heard President Emmert say that some conferences will, some conferences won't. Well, gee, I wonder who will, and I wonder who won't. <laughs> I think I know the answer to that. Uh, the haves will, and the have-nots will try. I'll try, uh, but many will not be able to. Fueling a little bit more of this BCS, anti-BCS debate. And I, I, I just think, again, go back and examine the life of a student-athlete in intercollegiate sports in America today and see how privileged they are to be where they are and the opportunities they have. And if you don't believe me, then you need to Google Jay Paterno, the offensive, or excuse me, the quarterback coach for Joe Paterno, Coach Joe Paterno at Penn State, who has written what I think is the most definitive uh, statement yet on why this is not a good idea right now. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, just to uh, uh, clarify, Bob, the, the commission did support uh, cost of attendance, but uh, only for those students with financial need. So it wasn't a blanket uh, cost, cost of attendance. I, I'd like to hear uh, each of you uh, offer your thoughts on the issue of uh, conference realignment. We've seen this issue play out over the last several months, and obviously uh, there have been winners and losers in, in this in the sense that some conferences now will be generating a lower revenue, but it's wreaking havoc on other institutions that are uh, losing uh, conference uh, membership. And I think another issue of concern, it, it, the geography is no longer, it seems, a factor in conference realignment. So what does this mean for uh, uh, non-revenue sports and teams that are going to have to travel across the country, et cetera? So anyway, it's a, it's a very... Uh, uh, troubling uh, issue, and um, you can, on the one hand, see why there's interest because of the revenue side, but on the other hand, what are the long-term consequences of this? So anyway, I'd just be interested in each of you offering your thoughts uh, of where this is headed, and uh, is it a good thing, and uh, what, what can we do about it if it, if it isn't? Did I mention I was new, and I don't President know? Ross, you can... <laughs> Given those credentials, you, you should be able to start. <laughs> um, you know, I, I guess I look at it from um, the side of all those athletes that don't play football because I think this is clearly driven by football. Um, and, you know, when I think about the volleyball team and the golf team and the tennis team and the soccer teams that are going to have to go from uh, in the conference in which two of my schools participate, from Miami to Syracuse um, in the middle of the week and are going to have to figure out, uh, you know, how to handle their academic work when they're now going to have to miss even more class than they've missed before, it's a matter of real concern. Uh, and it's, it's not, you know, that's not to say that I agree or disagree with what the ACC did. I think it's, this is becoming the trend with every conference, that the travel distance and the cost of uh, both in terms of money, but to me even more importantly, the, the, the the uh, effect on class time uh, is a real concern. And I think we, we have to look for, if we're going to do this realignment, which, again, I think uh, certainly at the system level I don't have any control over, but uh, if we're going to do it, I think we have to encourage uh, our chancellors and, and 
coaches and everybody else to figure out scheduling mechanisms that will uh, enable kids to uh, miss as little class time as possible. Uh, so, you know, I don't know what that means. You know, do you do pods of tennis matches uh, over a weekend uh, or soccer games or something so that, uh, you know, kids are uh, on the road less often and play more in a centralized place? I, I don't know what it means. I think we've got to look at all of that to minimize the effect on student-athletes because it, it is going to have a negative impact, in my view, over time if it continues to, to, to move in the direction that it, that it seems to be heading. Um, I don't know how you control it. I mean, I don't know who the controlling body is. I think that's one of the problems, and clearly Congress sees that as a problem. Um, and whether they will get involved, I don't know. Uh, I guess it depends on where it heads. But, um, you know, this is another reason I think the governance at the NCAA is so critically important because it, uh, it, it can, though it may not have control, it can certainly have some influence, and um, I hope it will. Well, let me second exactly what Tom said about the concern for the non-football sports and the, the travel schedule and, the, and uh, a variety of other issues related to that. I think it is a clear concern. We're part, Mike and I are part of a conference that seems to be a destination for some who want to join the SEC, and I'm still not comfortable with what's going on. And I think not only for the reasons Tom suggested, but I wonder sometimes what kind of message we send to our students when we say, we're prepared to leave a long-standing family if the price is right. Uh, I wonder if we say we're willing to renege on commitments to rivals and others if we can be bought away. I wonder if that's the kind of message an institution wants to embed in its values and then try to persuade the students that there's some higher calling than just ch ch chasing the uh, issue of the moment. So it's not just whether or not it's creating chaos, and it is. But it's also what, are, what is it we want our students to take away above and beyond what they learn in the classroom and the playing field about what values are in a larger society. And that disturbs me some. Now, I will tell you, I jokingly said to some of my colleagues, maybe we simply ought to control the chaos. Maybe every year we just ought to draw 12 names at a time of universities out of a hat and create annual conferences. And then in you know, some years we'll be playing Boise and some years we'll be playing UCLA. And we'll just control. We'll have a number of teams that can play in BCS Bowls and we'll add, we'll pull that number out each year and we'll play it off and, and, and just control the chaos instead of this uh, kind of constant motion. Uh, I think it's not over. Uh, and I think it's far from over, and I think we'll, we could ultimately end up with two enormous conferences, one called ESPN and one called Fox. And, uh, and that would be sort of what drives us to this final outcome, and, and, and it bothers me a good deal. But like Tom, I'm not exactly sure yet what we do about it. Bob? Well, I think Mark Emmert uh, was very candid today in his discussion of, of this uh, of this issue of conference realignment when he mentioned the fact that the BCS has something to do with this because this is not just about moving from one conference to another for money. It's about moving from one conference to another for automatic qualifying status for some of us. So I'll just speak for myself. I'm guilty as charged. Uh, yes, I am interested in conference alignment if it can gain uh, automatic qualifying uh, status. And, and in a larger sense, I'm also cognizant of the fact that some of these larger conferences could bring uh, additional uh, attention to the, to the university. And given the fact that we have, and this has been said by my colleagues, we have used athletics 
and the athletic success we've had to raise money for the academic mission of the university. And as a growing university, I must consider where I can best position Boise State University, not only when it comes to how much money is in a TV contract, but the extent to which that plays into my ability to uh, position the university for uh, some of our significant uh, fundraising goals. Uh, so if, uh, and I'm delighted I had a chance to mention the BCS while I'm here, Gerald, uh, because <laughs> if in fact you could solve the issue of the, of the BCS and the fact that football still remains the only sport in NCAA intercollegiate athletics where there is no playoff and no opportunity for student athletes of all kinds at all levels to reach the championship the way Butler did at Indiana and Indianapolis. As long as that remains, then you'll continue to have this wild, crazy drive for conference realignment. Thank you. Henry? I, I want to come back to um, Quest of Attendance, because I'm very sympathetic to what Bob said about it. And I sent, uh, even though the Knight Commission, uh, with the um, amendment that Gerald just stated, uh, supported this on the basis of financial need, you'll recall, colleagues, that I sent out a note um, to you all expressing my um, queasiness about cost of attendance. And I think um, one of my main concerns is the gap that Bob mentioned between student athletes and other students on campus, which is further opened up by this. Um, one of the justifications that the NCA has stated for this is that student athletes can't work uh, in the way that non-athletes, they don't have the time to do it to what you call minimum wage jobs at a library or wherever, and, and there's a truth to that. Uh, at the same time, the NCA has talked about uh, fractionating this uh, stipend based on whether you're full scholarship or not, which doesn't say anything about financial need. Uh, it just creates a parallelism with the kind of scholarship you have. I, I find that a very curious idea and against the justification for the stipend itself. So I think, um, I haven't seen Mr. Paterno's, or, or I did see uh, the article that Seth Davis uh, did that was presented in our briefing books, which I thought was a very good statement about the uh, tremendous value given student-athletes uh, for, uh, at, a, at a private university. You're talking about a couple hundred thousand bucks uh, over four years uh, at a place like Duke or Stanford or Northwestern. Uh, and you, uh, for tuition alone, not to say room and board, I mean, it's, it's more money than uh, most graduating seniors are going to make in the first uh, three or four years uh, after graduation. So it's, it's a very considerable investment. Uh, and um, to add to that gap, uh, for all the reasons given, they're not all foolish reasons, but again, I, I state my, at least my ambivalence, but I, probably I come down against it. Can I use this for an opening just to make a case that I'm making yes. for another sport, and that is this, baseball. If you really want the full cost of attendance, and baseball really is on the far end, because uh, what do you get, 11.7 scholarships for 35 players, which you must distribute across those 35. And, and I think it's hurt college baseball in two ways. I think it's created an incentive for kids on the bubble to sign with the pros out of high school rather than go to college because they can't get a full scholarship. And I think it's hurt diversity in baseball, where if you have a great athlete, a great black athlete in particular, in our case, I've seen it. 
who had a choice between football and baseball, despite the fact that they would have probably preferred to play baseball, and we have the only two athletes in the history of the NCAA to have a national championship ring in both sports. One of them would have preferred to be a full-time baseball player, but he took the football scholarship because it was three times as much. So I think as we're talking about this, we better back up and look at the entire uh, waterfront and decide, is a third for a baseball player fair relative to 13 scholarships or I think 12 now for women's basketball? I understand some of the reasons for it, but I do think uh, I've been on this campaign. Mark knows I wrote him a very long email in which I outlined the fact that since there's over 300 teams playing baseball, since the beginning of the World Series, only 90 have made it and only 43 have won. And in the last several years, 20 teams have dominated baseball. So you're giving, you're, you're creating divisions that aren't there to preserve lower costs at some level. Let's think about that one as well. So I, but I share your ambivalence about the whole package as well. Man? Yeah, I'm, I'm probably falling on the side of, of providing um, the cost of attendance. But to kind of clarify my thinking and, and we're having presidents here in the room, um, are, are there any parallels as far as providing uh, above and beyond room books, board, and tuition for gifted students who are non-athletes? Well, I will just tell you quickly about LSU, and then I'll get shut up. We have what's called the Pelican Promise, and it's, we fund it ourselves. And if your family falls in Pell eligible, 1.5 times the poverty rate, and you cannot afford, the full cost of coming to LSU will make up the difference. And it averages $4,200 a year. Now, is that for a gifted student or just a student? Any student, any student that qualifies at our, at our level, we have admission standards. And anyone who's above, at or above those admission standards, it's only for a Louisiana residence, but it's a way in which we can push up tuition in all candor and still maintain access for students who come from, and you know Louisiana is a very bimodal state, a handful of very rich people and a whole lot of poor folk. And so we're trying to find a way to make sure those folks at the other end do not feel left out by coming up with a program that fills in the difference to what we estimate to be full cost of attendance. Yeah, because in my mind I'm trying to reconcile you know, where the differences are with bringing gifted students in that raise the profile and, you know, increase, um, you know, the, the kind of diversity, not necessarily from a socioeconomic or even an ethnic diversity, but bringing a diversity to a campus that essentially enriches that campus. And, you know, there's a quid pro quo there, and I'm just trying to figure out what the differences are um, on, on this basis. Bob? Well, I would just make the observation that there is an increased number of gifted students at every public university in America anyway who are going to school with no scholarship as their counterparts a few years ago might have gone. And that is because the state appropriation is going down instead of up. We have fewer scholarships to offer our best students now than ever, which just seems to me to make the point that that seems hardly the time for us to be turning around and rewarding students who are already benefiting from training tables from academic support, the likes of which the entire student body doesn't get near, and a whole list of, of other uh, opportunities that uh, are reserved for 450 student athletes on my campus. But doesn't that beg the question that maybe some of those things need to be reduced? Uh, some of what things? Uh, from an academic support standpoint, not to say that oh, you want absolutely. to eliminate it, but I mean, there, yeah. there may be cost saving measures, there may be cost saving measures in, in training right. table and some of the other areas. Believe so me, when I talk to... about some of these great frills, uh, 
it's not as though you'll find them on my campus. Again, we're talking about haves and have-nots. I, yeah, no, I, have, I understand. I think that. I have 2.5 academic support people, and I don't know what that $20 million academic support center at Oregon has, but I, I'll bet you they're a lot larger than we are. You're, you're absolutely right. That is definitely the direction to go, is to take some of those down or find some common denominator, some way to hold the, the cost down. Okay. Any other questions? All right. Um, to go to the full cost of attendance, I, again, it's not black. It's not black and white, even among public institutions. Uh, given the, the difficulties of state funding, uh, there no no universities have suffered more from the reduced state funding than the University of California, I believe. But the the financial aid package at the University of California at all campuses. Not, not just UCLA and Berkeley, uh, is such that anyone in the, in the uh, even with, with better, better, from a better economic uh, condition than Mike describes, will get the full cost of attendance from non, um, from non, uh, um, from full aid without, without, without having to repay it. And, and the, but, but the situation is such that some of the students, given that some of the student athletes from the same kind of circumstances, given the, the NCAA rules and regulations, might not be able to get all that. So I, I, think, I think this is something that needs to be looked at very carefully. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Well, thank all of you for being with us. Uh, we certainly appreciate it and uh, want to uh, tell the press behind me that... Uh, Obviously, they're welcome to visit with uh, each of you. Uh, you don't need to do that. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Amy, Brent, and I will uh, visit, be available for the press in the Washington room here in about 15 minutes. Uh, and uh, the members of uh, the commission, obviously, will have lunch, and then we'll meet back in here at uh, start right at 1 o'clock. All right, so you, we've got about an hour here between, uh, well, 55 minutes to lunch in these meetings. But thank you Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. For more information, please visit www.knightcommission.org.